This is Awareness Explorers. Good afternoon, good evening, fellow explorers of the inner realms and inner awareness. And I am Jonathan Robinson, your co-host, and I'm with my trusty co-host. Brian Tom O'Connor. And we have a subject today, which we uh, came up with about half a dozen titles. I'm not sure what the latest one is, but it's something like how the mind manages to keep us asleep or mind ploys or something like that. And it's really what every user who has a mind should know about what their mind does to trick them into focusing on problems, worries, and all kinds of negative things when bliss, awareness, peace, and love are surrounding us and available. How do we keep falling for the same old ploys? And I think we have both have a lot to say about a lot of different ploys that the mind uses. But when we came up with this topic, Brian, what showed up in your in your beautiful mind? <laughs> well, I think that it is a great topic because the mind really does have dozens of ploys to keep us away from seeing reality as it is. But I do want to just say that when we talk about the mind and when we talk about thoughts, I think it's safe to break it down into two types. One is practical thoughts. You know, if you want to get to the airport on time, you might have to figure out what's the best time to leave and how you're going to get there. We're not talking about those practical thoughts. I think we're talking about the incessant inner dialogue that tells you what's wrong with you, what's wrong with the world, and uh, what's wrong with other people. And maybe we might call that the emotional mind, or maybe you have a better term for it. Dr. Jeffrey Martin called it the narrative self, like the the constant commentator on everything. And I kind of like that term because it it shows that we're always in a, nar a narrative, a story that we've created rather than reality, which is always there if we stop commenting on it. And you're right that the practical mind is not the problem. As Ramdas used to say, the mind is a a uh, wonderful servant and a terrible master. And for most of us, it's mastering us most of the time because we keep falling for its illusions. And as you know, Brian, I, I'm an amateur magician. So one of the interesting things about magic is that it, re it basically shows you how easy it is to trick people and to trick ourselves because we're looking one way and then the magician does something else. And in a certain way, that's what's going on with the mind. But once you know some of its tricks, how it does what it does, some of its uh, ways of creating an illusion, you don't fall for it so easily, or at least for such a long time. And that can help you to then awaken to what's really beyond the mind, which is awareness, which is a stillness in reality, which is just this moment. I really like that phrase, the narrative mind. I think that that says it perfectly, because it's the story about our lives that actually filters reality from direct experience. And another way the mind does that is um, the mind I've always referred to the mind as the organ of separation. Its, its purpose is mm -hmm. to make distinctions between things. And let's just say, for the sake of argument, that it's true that there's only one thing going on, that all is just energy vibrating in various temporary forms arising and falling. Then that mind that makes distinctions between things is not actually showing us the truth. So it's another filter between direct experience of reality and ourselves. Yeah, and before we get too down on the mind, you have to realize that this did have a lot of survival value. It allowed us to become the dominant species on the planet. And uh, the fact that we create stories about everything means that we can share these stories, like stories about how uh, pieces of paper are worth something, known as money, uh, how stories about how to organize nations such as democracy or other forms of government, that the mind's ability to create these stories, even about ourselves, 
can sometimes be helpful for being successful or getting things done or survival. But there's a lot of baggage that goes along with this. And the more you know some of its tricks, the more you can avoid some of its uh, unfortunate tendencies that keep us from peace. Like, for example, the mind is very big at, at becoming very attached to belief systems, or what I use as an acronym BS for belief systems. And we act as if our belief systems are completely true. And you can see in religious wars that people will die for their belief systems. And our belief systems, of course, yours and mine, Brian, are absolutely correct. But everybody else's is a little wackadoodle. <laughs> and unfortunately, other people don't see it that way sometimes. But belief systems about, you know, this candidate is perfect and the other party is, is bonkers. Uh, we get very emotional about that. Our belief systems about what's true and not in terms of religion, uh, our belief systems about money or about ourselves. We take it all as being completely real, and it's very hard for us to step out of our belief system box. But what are your observations about that? Well, that's absolutely true. And as a matter of fact, uh, I mean, yes, it's true that certain beliefs and certain ideas and thoughts are, are helpful in a practical way, as we mentioned before. But I would say that if what your aim is, is to really dig down and see the ultimate truth of your own nature, then don't believe anything. Beliefs are simply filters. And mm -hmm. experience can be known directly through our senses and our perceptions without words. And that's what I'm going to focus on in the guided meditation at the end. Great. You know, unfortunately, there's no, I don't know, corporation or, or interest group, which is saying, don't believe anything. They all want us to believe something. And, and we get caught up in those types of promotions and advertisements. A friend of mine uses the term, he says, there's only two things in the world. There's God and there's advertising. And unfortunately, God or our true nature, or whatever you want to call it, doesn't have a advertising body. It's just there. And uh, it's there underneath all the belief systems and advertising and uh, interest groups that would have us uh, not see the simplicity of our true nature. Yeah, that's right. But, you know, just, just to uh, insert this little observation that it's true that it doesn't have its own advertising system. However, a lot of proponents of it think that it does and actually advertise things like enlightenment and certain spiritual systems and methods that make us think that there's something that we don't have that we're going to get in the future. I call this spiritual advertising. And that's a belief mm -hmm. that we often fall for because enlightenment and our true nature can only be known now. And it can't be known in any conceptual way. As a matter of fact, you can only experience being it. So that's why it's beingness. So there is a certain amount of spiritual advertising that helps us, that, that leads us into thinking there's something great out there that somebody else has that we don't have that we're going to get. And, you know, even that can be useful to get people off their butt and searching and trying stuff, but it can also be a detriment to just relaxing into one's being now. So belief systems can be useful for certain things, you know, for, for even spiritual growth or, or making money or having relationships, but the fact that we we grab onto them and don't see outside of them or other possibilities is where it tends to be a a mind trick that keeps us kind of stuck. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And and you make a good point that a lot of times we need the mind to get us started, to have the idea that maybe there's something better than this and I might try something else. So yeah, you need to get it started. But once you get going, then the process is gradually dropping beliefs, 
and dropping attempts and dropping all conditions on experience. Mm -hmm. You know, something I sometimes say to the clients that I coach spiritually and, and in business is what got you to the level of success you're at now is the same thing that will interfere with you getting to the next level of success. <laughs> this is uh, God's way of making sure we don't evolve too quickly or something. I'm not sure why, but I've seen that uh, in myself that, you know, you might use your intellect or a certain belief to get you to a certain level, but then that belief or that ability actually interferes with you getting to a higher level. And uh, that's kind of a, a built-in ploy of the mind as well. Yeah, and it's too bad because, you know, we love our skills, we love our intellectual capacity, and and really the smarter you are and the more, say, academic or scholarship-minded you are, the easier it is for all that to get in the way of direct experience. Yeah, don't I know it. Okay, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> let's see. Uh, let's talk briefly about tribalism. Um of course, we don't notice any tribalism in our culture nowadays, but this is something <laughs> that... <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, you know, it's interesting how lost we are in that, how tribal uh, the internet and politics and everything, and or sports, you know, people will, will practically die for their sports team. That's a form of tribalism. And we miss all the nuance that you know, maybe the other party has something, political party has some value in what they're saying. We can't see it because our tribalism gets us into we're all good, they're all bad, and end of story, thank you very much. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, I, I, I have a term, the sportsification of politics. Yeah. It, it's this idea, my team good, the other team bad, no matter what. Right. And it's really in infected civil discourse, I think. You know, in America, they even have the term, my country, right or wrong. No, my country, when they're right, I support them. When they're wrong, I won't. You know, that would be a better way of looking at it. But this tendency, which really it was an evolutionary quirk as well that helped us to survive at one point. Now that evolutionary quirk of, of you know, trying to defend your tribe might destroy the whole entire planet. You know, uh, nuclear war and uh, all kinds of war is now so dangerous that we really need to get beyond that mind ploy, or we may not get to our next level of evolution because we won't be here. And tribalism at, at its essence is a way of blinding us from seeing any nuance and any value in another group. Uh, you know, we go into black and white thinking, and there's a lot of emotion backing it, and it just is a, another form of, of blinding us from what is. Yeah, that's right. And uh, it just makes me think of how great Byron Katie's question is. Her question is, is it true? Mm -hmm. And how can I, how do I, know it's true. And if we ask this of everything we believe, it really can put a dent in things like tribalism. Yeah. Yeah. Or or questions like, uh, what about the other team, the other party, the other whatever, uh, actually makes sense? Most people don't even research that because they're so tribal. That it's really a shortcut to just know which side to be on so you can root for them. And that shortcut uh, keeps us from seeing the nuance and the small details that really can make a difference. That's right. And that's why identity is such a big um, sort of, I guess, obstacle in this whole thing. Because what, what tribalism and other things like that does is we identify with a group. We identify mm -hmm. with a team, we identify with a political party, we identify with an ethnic group or social group, and we take that on as part of our personalities. And really the antidote to that is to question every concept of identity that you can possibly come up with and ask, what 
what knows that concept and what is that concept appearing until your identity becomes clear, nonverbal, non-conceptual, empty, infinite spaciousness. Yeah, that that would be nice if people could do that because getting very attached to identity is another one of the mind ploys that keeps us asleep. You know, there's been, I'm a psychotherapist, so I know a lot about psychology and various experiments. And I'll talk about two of the most famous psychological experiments ever done. One is called the Zimbardo prison experiment, where they split, you know, all their volunteers into two groups, ones that were being prisoners and ones that were being the guards. And as they did this, this, you know, just a random selection, you're a guard, you're a prisoner. They played it out for a few days. And within like a couple of days, the the guards were being cruel to the prisoners and the prisoners were being tribal and trying to hurt the guards. And it got so intense that they had to stop the experiment very quickly because it was so so much animosity between these two groups that were basically all just students who walked into the experiment. But when you tell people you're a this and you're a that, and you create that tribal experience, what normally happens is that people start hating each other and seeing the other group as a threat, even though 10 minutes earlier, without that label, without the identity, they were your friend. Amazing. Amazing. So as a result of that experiment, do you know of any ideas or theories that people have come up as an antidote to that kind of situation? Yeah, they've studied that as well. And they found that when you can get the two groups to work together, first of all, to talk to each other, that helps uh, in an open uh, setting, but especially if you can get them to work together. So what they would do when they had like a two tribal boys camps that were starting to like, you know, do things to each other that were harmful, they would say, oh, we have a, a, a huge truck that got stuck and we need everybody's help to dig it out. So now the two camps were working together towards a common goal and interacting and seeing that the other camp was not made up of neo-Nazis. It was made up of people like them. And that, type of thing. You know, uh, we've talked about how, you know, if an alien race came down to Earth and started to attack us, we'd all be identified as humans rather than as Russians and Americans and, you know, Saudi Arabians and, and Iraqis. We'd start to have a bigger identity and a shared identity. And that tends to be a big way to overcome that tendency. Yeah, I guess a common enemy is is something that actually binds people together. <laughs> well, it can. Unfortunately, COVID didn't do that. We went into our tribalism. That's it right. wasn't it wasn't uh, a big enough threat uh, yet. So uh, the threat has to be very specific that somehow brings people together. Um, another mind ploy which hits us and and is affecting the world is our desire for quick dopamine hits, a la Facebook, social media, and all that. And, you know, um, I'm 63. So when I look around to people younger than 40, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm attached to my smartphone, like just as much as the next person. But when you look at the younger generation, the smartphone is really an extension of their arm. So anytime you're on the subway, you can't really have a conversation with people nowadays because they're getting dopamine hits from their from their phone. And that busyness and the desire to like get the jackpot on our phone, you know, so to speak, um, is really affecting the world in a negative way. I've said before that a thousand Facebook friends does not equal one really good friend. And people are just inundated with opportunities to get these quick hits that keep them from just being relaxing and opening up to their true nature. Yeah. So is, would that include um, like video games? And would that include browsing on the internet and watching YouTube and stuff? Absolutely. Are those all 
dopamine hits and what is it so so what is it that really is harmful about that is it that i mean is it that we stop talking to each other and we stop interacting with each other um or is it that that it becomes our reality instead of actual reality do i get an all of the above and i'll include a fact that we get trained to need immediate reinforcement and that keeps us from a lot of the good things in life whether it be a loving relationship or learning to quiet your mind or uh, a, a a big project to help the world or being a parent all these things require delayed gratification and a lot of people are having a really hard time with being motivated to do those things because they want the sugar high of the dopamine hit and they train their brain to expect that. So it's almost like a new form of addiction. I see. And and then, of course, we get programmed being that these social media uh, sites are trying to keep our eyeballs on it. We get programmed by whatever they want to feed us. We don't realize that we're being, in a way, conditioned and programmed by an artificial intelligence that knows our mind's weaknesses and preys on them to keep us attached to the information it sends, which is normally outrage about the other tribe that is uh, is doing things that might destroy the world. That definitely gets our attention. We want to know what they're doing and how they're doing it, or we want the uh, quick entertainment of some good-looking people who are half-naked, or whatever it is, but it, it it basically rewires our brain. Yeah, well, what about the stuff that we, that we actually, what about doing research? Like, let's say, um, for example, I'm, I'm about to go on a trip to Europe, and I've been using uh, the internet to research things like, you know, the best places to see, the best places to pack, useful stuff like that. And it seems like it seems like, although certainly then I get a whole bunch of recommendations on YouTube on similar mm-hmm. subjects, but it seems that I'm the one who's sort of controlling that by, I want to find information about such and such. And I find it amazingly helpful, but am I, am I missing some key harmful element there? I don't think so. It really comes back to what you said at the beginning. Uh, if you can use things for practical purposes that you have defined. I think that's very valuable. You know, you want to go to Europe. Yeah, might as well find the best places. And that's a very practical application of using the mind to achieve a a good goal, we'll call it. What I'm talking about is mostly the unconscious filling space application of the internet uh, and Facebook in ways that does not lead to more depth, more consciousness, and more being a, a better, more mature human being. Yes, I see the distinction. And and especially in situations where we need to fill time. So we seem to be unable to just simply sit and be and notice our bodies and notice the sounds and notice the sights around us without ideas, without concepts, we seem to now need to fill that time with media. Yeah. Louis C.K., the uh, comedian, has a great thing. You can find it on YouTube. Uh, If you put in Louis C.K. cell phone, he did a thing on on, uh, Conan, uh, which he talks about this very directly, that we're trying to avoid a feeling of sadness or a feeling of of being disconnected. So we fill it up, but that prevents us from actually being a full human being. And that's hysterical and, and eye-opening. I don't know if you've ever seen it, Brian, but uh, it's worth it's worth watching. No, I've never seen it, but I'm definitely going to look for it now. Um, but the key here is we have to have our feelings. We have yeah. to look to where inside we're resisting our experience, including our emotions, where we're clutching against them and see if we can relax and allow them to be here. And that's that's really a key. And it's the avoidance of emotion 
that brings about a lot of these behaviors, including addiction to media and depression itself. Yeah, absolutely. Another one is our tendency to want authority figures, to believe authority figures, and to want them to save us and to do whatever they say. I'm always surprised. You know, it seems weird, you know, especially in America where we're very individualistic, that we still like have so many people looking to authority figures as they're going to save the world or they're going to solve it or to have unusual amount of faith in them. The most famous psychological experiment ever done was called the Milgram experiment. And I'll describe it briefly. A lot of listeners probably know about it, but it was so eye-opening. Stanley Milgram was trying to show that the Nazi Germany thing was an aberration and that Americans would never listen to authority figures uh, in the way that many Germans did to you know, actually kill people. So he devised an experiment where two people come in and they draw straws as to who's the learner and who's the experimenter, I guess. And the learner um, is hooked up to a machine, um, which is supposedly a shock machine. But the learner is in cahoots with the with the experimenter, with the 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 person leading the work, uh, the experiment. So he's a ploy. And the other person has their finger on the button of the shock machine and is told whenever the uh, learner blows learning something, you're supposed to shock them, you know, press the button. And each time they blow it, the shock gets higher and higher until eventually there's like XXX, you know, potentially fatal shock on on the console saying that, you know, these shocks are getting more and more intense. Also, they can hear the learner from the other room as the shocks get more intense. And of course, these are fake shocks, but they don't know that. They start to scream. Well, they asked psychiatrists in the day, this was done in the early 60s, what percentage of people would continue to shock people to the point that they thought that they they had killed them? And a psychiatrist said like one-tenth of one percent or something like that, like one in a thousand. And the actual number was 66% of people would shock somebody. That could have been them. They drew straws to see who would be in that position. And they thought that their shock had actually killed the other person. And the reason that they did the shock was that They were told by the person in a white lab coat, quote, in order for the experiment to continue, you must give them the shock. And that was it. They were in a lab coat. They had met them 10 minutes earlier, and they were willing to, two out of three people were willing to deliver what they thought was a fatal shock because this person in a lab coat said, in order for the experiment to continue, you must deliver the shock. Well, this was, excuse the pun, shocking to people that somewhere deep in our psyche, we tend to do whatever authority figures say. And that is a real problem. Yes, and that is shocking indeed. And uh, we all who listen to it imagine that we would not do that. In my mind, I, I would say no, you know. Uh, absolutely and, and, not. I'm not doing this. I'm quitting. I'm slamming it down. And 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 I may be totally wrong. Although I know that I've actually gotten fired from jobs because I refused to do something that I thought yeah. was unethical. But I don't. You know, you never know. But what do you do? What I mean, I, I you know, I mean, maybe forty. I'm I'm happy to hear that forty percent said no. <laughs> but, well, actually, uh, about ninety percent said no initially. Right. But the experimenter would say, well, in order for the experiment to continue. So the, the people were stressed out about this. They didn't they weren't casually doing it. A lot of them were like having mental breakdowns, but then they would do the shock. And so it wasn't an easy thing for them, but they were willing to follow directions. And that's exactly what happened in Nazi Germany and happens to a lesser extent a, a lot in the world. And we have this biological or evolutionary tendency 
to want to have a powerful king or president or whatever who will set things or savior who will set things straight. And that tendency of the human mind keeps us from asking ourselves, what's our truth? What feels right to me? Because we're looking so much towards authority figures rather than ourselves. So is that the antidote, asking that question? I think so. You know, I was in a spiritual group for a lot of years with a powerful authority figure, a guru, and uh, I saw that happen, that we tended to believe whatever he said. He was right 99% of the time. But that 1% that he wasn't right, nobody questioned him, except occasionally I did. Well, good for you. I'm I'm glad you did. It, it, it's kind of scary. And I, and, and, and I think that I guess what we need to do is really question everything. Yeah, or or really know that this is another ploy of the mind, another weakness to our evolution, and to be aware of it, and and to be aware when you might be falling into it. Well, that's a really good point that you make right there. You're right. It's knowing that the mind has the ploys, being able to identify them, and being able to see them when they arise, that you might stand a chance of making a different choice. Correct, correct. And then there's uh, the whole category, and we're not going to go into all of them, but what are called cognitive mistakes. And, you know, if you go into cognitive behavioral therapy, they, they have a whole list of like 20 mistakes the mind often makes, like tendency towards black and white thinking, tendency towards pessimism, uh, even a tendency to trust people can be a cognitive mistake. You know, we, there's a tendency that we believe whatever people say until they're proven otherwise, but that can get us into problems. And, you know, they've shown studies that optimists tend to think that any problem is short-lived and was out of their control, whereas pessimists tend to think that things will go on badly forever and that they have no control. And I, I confused it with optimists. Optimists think that they do have control. Pessimists think that they don't have control. And these are various cognitive mistakes, a tendency to not see anything good in somebody who you don't like, you know, et cetera, like that. There's a whole list of them. You can Google cognitive mistakes. And in fact, we make those mistakes in our economics. Um, we often underestimate how much something, how much we'll need some money in the future, for example. So people retire without enough money, or we uh, overestimate how good of a person we are, how good of a driver we are. You know, most people put themselves in the top 10% of drivers. Uh, so all these things can add up to not seeing reality accurately. Yeah. And, and uh, when you go through all these, we do have a tendency also when we think about it to think, oh my gosh, this is really horrible. All these terrible things. And we start to feel these emotions like there's something really dreadfully wrong with us and with human nature. And uh, that's just a belief too. That's just a thought. My recommendation is let it go or ask what is the clear, open space that that thought appears in and identify with that instead of your thoughts? Right. One of the great things about uh, knowing yourself as awareness is that it lets all these mind ploys kind of slide off you. You don't get too down the rabbit hole. And therefore, it keeps you hopefully from going too far off the rails and is a is a great antidote in of itself but there's other antidotes such as asking yourself the question well what is my mind doing right now yeah because then you become bigger than your mind right you become that in which your mind appears instead of identifying with it great exactly. question or simply um this was one of Locke kelly's uh, questions um 
I wonder what my next thought will be. Mm -hmm. It helps you stop identifying with thoughts. And as I said before, be the bigger spaciousness in which thoughts appear. Mm -hmm. I like the technique and one I use is, uh, what story am I currently running? Yeah. Because I'm always in a story. You know, currently I'm in a story called Jonathan doing a podcast, which is, that's a fine story. But a lot of times the story is, ah, they're screwing me over, or uh, I have too much to do to meditate, or, you know, poor me because uh, this little thing didn't go exactly the way I want it to go. And if I get too involved in those stories, that becomes my reality. And I miss beingness. I miss peace when I am locked in those stories. And that's true for like 99% of humanity, just going from one sob story to another. Uh, now, life is hard, so it's understandable that we're doing that, but there's no peace in that. Well, if 99% of humanity are locked in their stories, then it really truly is revolutionary to stop believing your stories. Mm -hmm. At least for 10 seconds. Yeah. You know, a, a statement I often do is, can you let go of your story for 10 seconds and just be here? Yeah, that's great. That's great. I, I love that because then you short circuit the idea of, well, I can't let go of my story forever. You know, what will happen if blah, blah, blah. And then just more stories and more stories happen. But if it's just, just for right now, just for this moment, can I let go of my story? Can I know my experience wordlessly? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that technique. You know, another thing that people fall for is wanting and pursuing with great passion and energy what I call ego rewards. You know, ego rewards are basically fame, prestige, and fortune. More fame and prestige. Fortune at least has some utilitarian value. But, you know, people want to be famous. They want to be a YouTube influencer or a rock star or an actress. And when you talk to these people, as I have, you know, they say that fame is basically a burden. Now, I was famous for about three months. And I got to experience this. You know, because I wanted to be famous, you know, my ego was like, yeah, I want to be special. I still want to be special a lot of the time. So, you know, it hasn't gone away completely. But, you know, when I was on Oprah Today, Tonight Show, all those things, for a while, people started recognizing me. And it got to be incredibly repetitious very quickly. You know, the same conversation over and over again, and and really a burden, you know, so it's it's another ploy where you know we're striving for something that if we got it it wouldn't feel good anyways and it just gets you on a treadmill of i want to be even more famous and and that whole bit so it's it's another illusion that we fall for and when you can see through it it can save you a lot of time and energy and years of striving towards something that ultimately doesn't give you much. Yeah, that's a great analysis. And, and I think the key in that to remember is that that person who becomes famous or that person whom you fantasize about becoming famous is not really you. It's like your favorite character in a movie or a novel. Mm -hmm. You are you are what knows that personality. You are not that Jonathan who became famous or Brian who became famous or even Brad Pitt who became famous. You are the universal awareness that knows what happens to the Brian character, the Jonathan character, the Brad Pitt character. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a tough one to see through, especially in some cultures where it's so propagated that, you know, to, to be important is the key to happiness. And as you and I know, despite all our cultural programming, that is actually not true. It is absolutely not true. And as a matter of fact, nothing in the external world is the key to happiness. Damn, I've done a lot of work in that area, Brian. You just <laughs> pulled the carpet out from under me. 
Yeah, luckily, you and I know where true happiness is. And, uh, and once you know that, you know, that's an antidote, you know, yeah. just, just not being totally encapsulated by these ideas, and knowing that you don't need a billion dollars or to be a rock star to be famous. You know, I, I always like these interviews with people like Bruce Springsteen, who says, you know, I, I suffer from depression, you know, even though he's so well regarded or all these people who, you know, sometimes even kill themselves because they've reached the top of their game, but they saw that it was empty. Yeah, it reminds me of that great classic uh standard song i think uh, it was made famous by louis armstrong make someone happy and there's a line in it that goes fame if you win it comes and goes in a minute where's the real stuff of life to cling to mm -hmm. nice nice so what other antidotes or suggestions might we give people other than knowing these things and knowing themselves as awareness anything you show up for you well, I think we've really mentioned a lot of them. I think wordlessness is very good. I think identifying with the spaciousness in which your experience appears, as opposed to the body, the mind, and the personality. I think questioning your thoughts, um, asking, is it is it true? And trying to just step back. The Buddhists call it the half step back where you are experiencing, you are identifying with that in which all experience appears. It's very hard to describe it in words, but if you try it and you get good at it, it can happen very quickly and it can happen in a second whenever something happens that your mind tells you is wrong. So you be on the lookout and when something happens that your mind tells you is wrong, it's a perfect opportunity, a little reminder to say, oh, okay, what's noticing that? Mm -hmm. And then shift your identity to the larger, I call it the big I instead of the little me, but even the big I is a concept because there is no concept that doesn't appear in that which knows the concept. So you can't see it, you can't talk about it, you can't apply a name to it, you can't conceptualize it, you can only just be it. Yeah. Uh, one more antidote that I throw in is sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll be worrying about something or feeling bad about something. I'll say, oh, that's just mind stuff. Oh, you know, <laughs> so simple. So that's perfect. Just, that's just mind stuff. Oh, that's just mind stuff. Yeah. And it's another one that's similar to that. So oh, there goes Brian doing that thing again. Yeah. Exactly. Or thinking or thinking that thing again. Right. right. But I like oh, it's just mind stuff. Yeah. It's just story. Well, I, it's just story. Yeah, just a story. Well, I hear you have uh, a guided meditation to help us out of that mind stuff. I do, actually. Yeah. Shall I dive into it now? I think now's a good now is always a good time. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. All righty. So this meditation provides an antidote for those times when your mind and your incessant thoughts seem to want to take over and flood your experience. When the words going through your mind are demanding all of your attention. When they seem to say, listen to me, ignore everything else. As you'll see, the key is not to fight these thoughts, but to notice that they're only one small part of your current experience. And to see that there are easy ways to let them be. That is, to let them come and let them go. So, first, as always, find a comfortable position. Close your eyes if it's safe to do so. Take a nice, easy, deep breath and relax. Gently turn your attention inward and notice the thoughts that are arising. Don't try to stop them or change them in any way, but simply notice them. Ask yourself, 
in what do these thoughts appear? Perhaps your answer is, in my mind. If that's the case, imagine your mind as a large, empty room or cavern or hall, and imagine your thoughts entering this space one by one. What thought will be next? Imagine you are that empty space and really get a sense of yourself as huge, so much bigger than the thoughts that appear in you. Now notice what else is arising in your experience. For instance, the sounds you hear or the body sensations you feel. Ask yourself, what can I notice in my current experience without using words to describe it? Again, body sensations and sounds are the easiest to play with here. You don't need words to notice the feeling of the weight of your body on the chair or the floor. You don't need words to notice the sound of wind or birds or air conditioning or traffic. One more time, ask yourself, what can I notice in my current experience without words? What can I experience wordlessly? Let's stay with this for a little while. After a bit, you may start to notice that verbal thought comes in anyway. No problem. Simply imagine that your mind is so slippery that when thoughts come in, they find no purchase and just slip on out the other side. Be that spaciousness in which all your experience appears. No words, just sensations and sounds. Notice your body wordlessly. Notice sounds wordlessly. Now, sit for a moment or two and make no attempt to change anything about your experience whatsoever. And now, take another easy, deep breath. And when you're ready, open your eyes. Always a great pointing to what is. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah, this has become my favorite go-to game or method or exercise lately. 
Uh-huh. And it kind of combines two things, the wordlessness aspect and the slippery mind. Right. Game. right. Yep. As usual, I want to thank our Patreon supporters for your help in making this broadcast possible. And if you want a bunch of extra stuff, go to patreon.com forward slash awareness explorers. And we'd love to be of help in any way we can and send you some extra goodies. Um, any last thoughts or words, Brian? Um, this has been fascinating. Thank you for uh, curating all these ploys and their antidotes. Yes, uh, as a as a uh, magician, I always like to know how the tricks happen, and uh, and these are a bunch of ways that, despite the fact that our true nature is bliss, consciousness, uh, peace, and love, some people manage to miss it their entire lives, and and we do as well, where we are uh, the victims of these tricks. And the more you know about them, the less that you will spend time uh, following them. So um, may you watch many of them arise and fall away during the upcoming weeks. And as always, keep exploring. Keep exploring. Thank you for listening to Awareness Explorers. To learn more, you can check out our website at awarenessexplorers.com. Please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app. We'd love it if you would post a review. And please share our link on Facebook and with family and friends. Because knowing yourself as awareness is the greatest gift you can give yourself or someone you love.